The 2022 ACB Virtual DC Leadership Meetings will be held Saturday, March 12th through Tuesday, March 15th. Registration is $20 for ACB members and $30 for non-members. ACB members were sent a discount code via email. If you are an ACB member and did not receive the discount code, please call the Minneapolis office at 612-332-3242. Registration closes March 9th. Visit acb.org for more information or register at https slash slash tinyurl.com slash 2022-DC-Leadership-Meetings. Opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good evening and welcome to Tuesday Topics. I'm your host, Paul Edwards, and uh, I get to to welcome a kind of a new hand-raising expert. She's actually very experienced at it now and has been doing it for over a year, but she's also the president of my state affiliate. So welcome, Ms. Sheila, and thanks very much for doing this. Thank you, Paul. And we also have our streamer, who is Larry Gassman, as usual. And uh, Rick is off doing other things tonight, so I don't even think he's lurking. So, Larry, welcome, sir. And, and uh, as, as usual, both of you guys will be part of Tuesday Topics as we go ahead. So welcome, Mr. Gassman, Thank sir. Thank you, Paul. Glad yeah. to be here again. Excellent. And our guest tonight is uh, a person who I described in, in my kind of introduction to Tuesday topics as a friend uh, and uh, a leader. And um, he, has, he has actually decided when he retired uh, to move to Florida and, and now lives relatively close to me, probably at least within 100 miles of me, which is not too far away given the size of Florida. And he has a long, and I think uh, people will find a very interesting history and can share his opinions with us on a whole range of subjects. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome as my special guest this evening, Mr. Anicio Correa. Anicio, how are you, sir? Good, good. Thank you, Paul. And it's a pleasure to to be here as as, um, an often listener of Tuesday Topics and now a participant. Under the microscope, as it were. (laughs) So one of the one of the more interesting things that I talked about when um, when I uh, sent out my announcement with regard to Tuesday topics was the fact that Anicio, like loads of other people, was not born in the United States, but but came to the U.S. somewhat somewhat later uh, than the time he was born, and he spent his early life in Europe. Um, in a country that I think a lot of us in this country don't know an awful lot about, and that is the country of Portugal. Um, so, Anicio, were you were you born with a visual disability, or did no, did you develop it later? I developed later, and we just started. I just heard for the first time a thunderstorm coming up. So, if if I happen to if you happen to lose me, that's the reason. Hopefully not. But I I uh, I was born in Portugal. Um, and for those of you who have not heard of Portugal or had a chance to visit, it's a wonderful country, beautiful. It is. And it's small enough that 
even though even though it's small, it's very varied in terms of its uh, its uh, scenery. Um, meaning that uh, you can go from the coast to the mountains to the prairies uh, in a very short time. So it, in a, a short vacation, you can get the full experience, not to mention, of course, the food and the, the wine, etc. But um, I was born with sight. Um, I was the third um, sibling in, uh, we're seven altogether, but the first three uh, were born one year after each other. So uh, I was the, the third oldest. And uh, so I always had my my brothers as, as playmates. I, I started having vision problems problems when I was three years old. Uh, they, as, as always, not only in Portugal, but, you know, I've seen it happening here too. Parents are at a loss and go from doctor to doctor and trying to look for a miracle my vision kept getting worse. Uh, a doctor would say he's too young to, to be operated on. And by the time I was operated on when I was five, um, the, the surgeon said, oh, I wish he had come two years ago or, you know, whatever. But um, so I lost the little vision that I had then. My parents kept, kept going from doctor to doctor still. And I remember well when I was nine or 10, we went to a doctor, and by then, of course, you know, I, I, I already have memory of that, the event. We went to a doctor, and I remember him clearly telling my mother, you have to stop this. There's nothing that can be done medically, um, and you need, to, you need to make other arrangements and find a school or find some program for him to, I, I don't know what else he said, but I think, I'm, I'm assuming he said something like that. So... Um, my mother had, was a school teacher. She, was, she, she taught elementary school. And because my, my, my siblings were, as I said, one year apart, when my, my older sister turned six, she went to school with my mother for first grade in a small village. And then the following year, when my brother turned six, he went to school. And all of a sudden, I, I found myself without a playmate. And then when I turned six, I said, now it's my turn to go to school. So my mother took me to school. But I, I think from what I remember and what she told me, it took maybe only two or three days before I realized that, that you know, the, the experience was not fulfilling. And I was too bored and I couldn't follow. She didn't know what to do, obviously. So I, I ended up spending a lot of time going to, um, to work with my dad and um, and really being around adults, I remember my, my, my father teaching me the alphabet, all in theory, and, and then taught me how to type, or begin you know, how to use a typewriter. And I kept saying to my, my parents, I need to go to school, I need to learn, I need to, I had no idea what, or you know, I didn't know any other blind person. And my parents knew that there was a school for the blind in Lisbon, in the capital, there is about three, 250 miles away. And they just thought it was too far um, for me to go away. And so I stayed basically at home and going with my father to work until I was 10. And at that age, just coincidentally, you know, someone came to my father's work and my father was telling him, uh, introduced me and telling me about how I wanted to go to school. Well, it turns out, 
there was a, a residential school for the blind about 15 miles away, and we didn't know it. Wow. Um, in the second largest city. Now, obviously, this is before Google and Internet, and, you know, we're talking about, we're talking about the uh, early 60s. So, so the moment he, uh, my father found out about that, you know, I, w- I really, I was enrolled in that school in a matter of, I don't know if it was months or weeks, I really don't remember, but so I went, I started attending school for the blind on a, on a residential basis and going home every weekend. And, um, and that's where I began learning Braille in the first class, first, uh, first grade. Learn Braille, learn how to use the slate and stylus, learn how to use the, you know, all the all the all the academic blindness skills. No ideal, no mobility. Although they did teach me how to make the bed, my bed, and and things like that. Um, so and I went to that school for the blind until <clears throat> I could go no no longer, which was after the the first five years. A lot of the kids after that went home. And many of them did absolutely nothing. Um, I ended up going to uh, to my home school, uh, my my home school, my uh, local um, high school. At that time, again, we're talking nineteen sixty six. At that time, we because nobody had ever gone to that school, um, the the principal forced us to have a special permission from the Ministry of Education and which I was able to get and um, they were all very nervous the teachers the principal because I was the first blind person and my thing at that time was always was always you know don't worry about that that's my problem I'm the one that has to figure out what to do how to do and all that so you know initially they they didn't want to give me any written tests, for example. Oh, no, we don't have to worry about that. It's just we'll do an oral test. I said, no, but I'm not as good in oral tests, or I want to be, I want to be the same as everybody else. I had a really uh, uh, almost intrinsic kind of need to, to be treated the same way. And, you know, had a, uh, anyway, um, my brother never, my older brother never understood that because he said, man, you could have so many breaks and here you are arguing to 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 have it the hard way but i remember dragging my mother evening after evening to visit these teachers and convince them that i wanted to do this i wanted to do it the same way i wanted to you know um so they would you know i got them to meet with me before each test and they dictated the questions to me and uh, before i i typed the answers the the availability of books and materials in Braille was, was starting to happen in Portugal at that time. But unfortunately, they were always one year behind me. So if I was in uh-huh. first grade, first, first year of high school, or second year, they were doing the first year uh-huh. and, and so forth. So I basically in high school copied all my, every single book that I needed, both in from the languages and English and German and Latin and French, I copy them all on the slate and stylus, which someone dictated it to me um, because I didn't have any other any other books. Um, which Pretty was amazing all- stuff. Now, did did Portuguese Braille have a, a contracted version? They do, yes. Although yeah. they do, and it was very 
used very widely used. Uh, I, I now understand that they are going away from a contracted braille, which I think is a shame to, to, to make it easier for, for younger people or right. Just like in Spanish. Too. And that's, that, that, that's what I was about to say. And that's essentially what's happened with Spanish braille. They don't use, yeah. they, they don't use grade two braille very much at all. Right. Right. <clears throat> but they, but, but of course yeah. they do use accent signs. Right. But at that, at that time I actually, I learned uh, Portuguese uh, contracted Braille as well as the um, French and of course later the English. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a couple of questions about Portugal. Um, had, had Spain already started doing kind of blind people and, and selling lottery tickets when you were growing up? You know, I don't know, um, because I, I only found that out once I was here, you know, mm -hmm. in, in, because of my work in the international arena. That's how I, I found out about ANSE and, and their practice. Uh, right. I don't, so I, I'm, a, I'm assuming they have, because they, they've been doing this for a long time. Yep. Um, and, and in Portugal, when, when you were going to high school, were your expectations always to go on to university in Portugal if, if you, uh, if, once you completed high school? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there was never a, there was never a question in my mind to, um, that the, the only, the only, uh, ob the only challenge was going to be, so I went through, <clears throat> I never learned how to, how to use a cane until I went away to college. So even in high school, I always went to and from school, and if we went out uh, after school, always sighted guide. I mean, never. Right. The whole idea of a cane was not even part of my, my uh, repertory. Which, which thinking back now is just incredible. But uh, I mean, that's that's true of a lot of us. I mean, I I really didn't start using a cane seriously until until I was over thirty, um, when I came back to the states from the Caribbean, and mm -hmm. and I had. I had been in the Caribbean from the time I was 13 mm -hmm. and, and there was no such thing as a school for the blind that did high school stuff. So I was mainstream, whether I wanted to be or not. Right. right. Um, and, and, and it's interesting. Did you, I, I know I didn't, but I'm curious. Did, did you feel under any pressure to have to be the person who made most of the decisions about how you could be accommodated, or was that just the way it was? I think that was just the way it was, and, and there yeah. was, you know, I, I, you know, being part of a, a large family, you know, with older siblings, you know, very close in age. I always felt that I had to um, fight for uh, equality. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Not that they, not that they excluded me, but. You know, so if they went outside and play soccer, for example, I would say, I want to go. And my mother would then say, either he goes or nobody goes. So, <laughs> and then it was up to me to try to figure out with them, you know, how I'm going to, how was I going to, you know, be part of the, the game or participate. So, and I always, you know, I was always able to figure it out. So there was always a, a challenge um, that I that I welcomed in some ways, you know, to, to prove myself. Now, I, I don't know a lot about the Spanish educational system. I know that in, in the UK and in the British educational system, you had, 
um, you had like uh, high school and then you had kind of what, what amounts to a post high school period called the sixth form where, where you actually did kind of college prep work, if you like, um, in Portugal, was was your high school system similar, or no? Not a little bit different, but it's different now than it was when I was was there, obviously. But uh, at that time, the whole school uh, from first grade to to the last year of high school was a total of eleven years. Huh? Yeah. And then many of the many of the uh, majors in college, you would get a bachelor's with three years. Now it's all four years and twelve years of high school of uh, school. Oh, right. Now, did you have to pass exams or take exams between um, elementary school and, and high school? Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, every year we had to take even in high school, um, mm-hmm. we had to take exams. And that, again, there was the. Uh, the time when they they would say that I I could just do an oral exam or mm-hmm. I fought them so much so <laughs> I fought them so much that um, I had one teacher in high school that I convinced them finally that you know f- by that time there was a we had a, a braille press in uh, not too far from the actually nice. where I went to the school for the blind so I convinced them to send the tests to them to braille for me. Some teachers didn't want to do it because they didn't trust it. They didn't trust the process that somehow they were going to tell me the answers. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually, you know, that as inconvenient as it was at that time, it made me feel very good. And I said, okay, finally. So finally they, they are um, treating me, I guess, like everybody else. Um, so, but in some cases they would send the test to the times they would, uh, as I said, meet with me, the period before the, the exam and dictated to me and, and then I would use a typewriter. Mm-hmm. That's another of the, of the interesting things. I think all of us who were outside of, of, um, of the U.S. and going to school had to learn to use a typewriter pretty soon because we oh, couldn't yeah. write our, our stuff in Braille and hand it in. That's right, that's right. <laughs> um, and that, that's the interesting thing. You know, you, you remember that the manual typewriters used to have, oh, yeah. these, uh, they had this little thing on the back that you lift up so you could hold the page, the paper up. Yep. So I had a teacher, I had a, stu- I had a schoolmate that always sat behind me and always asked me to leave that paper up so you could read my answers. And then I had <laughs> a teacher that was smart enough every time she'd come around and put the thing down. I said, you don't need to see this. You don't need to look at it. But so... Um, interesting, interesting stuff. Yep. So, um, at the end of high school, the question is, what what is Anisio going to do now? So, talk about the decision taking process that was made at the end of high school. So, my my family, meaning my parents and all my siblings, moved to the United States uh, three years before I finished high school. And I convinced them to let me stay behind. Um, we, and my my argument to them was, you know, if I go now because my English is not that great, I know I once I get there they're gonna put me in a school for the blind. That was the uh, my fear. Uh, now that I had just left one, and um, and somehow I convinced them. You know, I had a cousin that, li- that was living with us, and I had a, a living 
uh, maid that started as a maid, but really was more like a family member. Um, mm -hmm. And so I stayed with them. She, that woman that had a third grade education, she's the one that for three or four years uh, dictated every single book that I needed for me to, to transcribe into Braille, which, I mean, you're talking about German, English, French. Mm -hmm. She would read it phonetically and I would, I would write it. So... Once it really my, is amazing how much how much people can do. Oh, it's, it's um, a, yeah. Yep. It, it, and and without the help of those folks, we couldn't have done what we did. Just right. couldn't. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, so once Our, my my family left, I had a best friend that again replaced my brother pretty much in terms of walking with me back and back and forth to school. He walked by the house to pick me up, and uh, so when we towards the last. Last year of high school, we both decided that we were going to pursue the same, <clears throat> the same um, major in college. And then the question is where? Um, and we decided, to, I don't really remember if I was the one that decided or if he was the one that suggested to go to different, different colleges. So I went to Lisbon and he went to uh, Coimbra, which is another major college in Portugal. And once I decided to go to Lisbon, that's when I started uh, figuring it out really very quickly that I needed uh, I needed to learn how to get around by myself mm -hmm. since I didn't know anyone there. And I, I found a, somehow, I don't know how, but I found there was a, a, a re rehabilitation center in, uh, outside Lisbon. I called them up and uh, they wanted me to enroll and I told them no. I said that oh, what I needed was uh, did they have someone that taught people how to use a cane? So they put me in touch with uh, one of their teachers, and uh, he provided. Uh, I mean, what I think in and looking back was excellent mobility training for a few weeks before school started, and uh, and then once my money ran out because I was paying directly, um, I said, okay, I, you know, I think I had enough. And, and that, that was it. I, I started, uh, I started being able to, uh, to walk back and forth to school and, and begin, <clears throat> began making friends there in college. And, uh, and, and Lisbon is a very, I mean, Portugal in general, but Lisbon is a very walkable city. I started learning how to use the metro, the subway system. And, um, and it was really the first time that I felt totally independent, or at least you know, very independent. Um, so, so what in the world made you decide to stay in Portugal for college rather than coming to the States where you would presumably qualify for a lot more training in terms of being a good little blind person? Yeah, I, I think partly was, uh, first of all, I didn't really know what, training would be you know got that yeah i really did not know they did not have that concept every when yeah. I, came, I came to this country every summer to 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 stay with my family to vi visit with them and uh, when i was my parents at that time were living in boca raton in south florida a uh, somehow a uh, a counselor from the division of blind services found me somehow I don't, mm -hmm. know, I don't really remember how and he came to visit 
And one of those summers, he really tried to convince me to come and leave college and go to college here and tell me it told me about recording for the blind and all the books and da 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 and almost convinced uh-huh. me. But you know, I was having too good a time in Portugal and Lisbon and you know, <laughs> my own independence. And the only reason, honestly, I came even after I graduated, instead of going to graduate school, is because I had promised my my parents that first I promised I would come after high school, and then I can, I promised I would come after college. So that's the only reason. Because right before I graduated with my bachelor's degree, it was August or July of 1974, and three months later, earlier. Portugal underwent a uh, a revolution uh-huh. that did away with their fascist government and and started a democ- democracy. And during those three months, I became very involved in the student movement and uh, the some of the political parties and all. And, uh, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a it, it's it's even hard to believe for me now that I left that. But since I had promised them so much, and I ended up coming after it. I um, I was uh, in university when, uh, or, or right after Jamaica became independent, and and mm-hmm. right at the time when, um, when Jamaica was getting very active in opposing apartheid in South Africa. Mm-hmm. That's, um, those are incredible that, times. Yeah. So uh, and. And you know, I, I, I was right at the front of those lines, boy. And, and they were they were happy to have me there because they figured the police, um, <laughs> the police probably wouldn't be as harsh with them and wouldn't use the water cannon as often. Wrong. <laughs> but that's true. That's true. I mean, I remember being you know before the actual revolution, but in the student movement in in, in Lisbon, right. and the same thing. You know, and I, in fact, I was hoping to be arrested to make a. Yeah make a point but i never you know the police would come to me and said we're going to do this you better get out <laughs> exactly <laughs> yep yep okay so so suddenly at the in 1974 and that would have made you how old 23 23 so in 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 1974 at the age of 23 even though you'd been visiting for summers or suddenly you're suddenly moving to the United States. Uh, and did you anticipate that you were moving there permanently or did you think it was just for a while? No, I think it would be, it was permanent. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so your yeah. first degree in Portugal had been in, in what subject? It's uh, English, German, and uh, literature and language and literature. It's called philo- uh, Germanic philology. Nice. So basically, it's a, it's it's really a degree that leads to to teaching in high school or college. Yeah, and and, and I'm not sure that folks understand just how different um, European universities are um, to American ones, um, or at least I, I certainly found the British ones were very different. Did you find that uh, with your subsequent experience that? that your university experience in Portugal was different from the one you had here? Um, maybe a little bit. Um, it, it's hard to tell because my experience here was already after I had some of the technology, some of the adaptive technology 
right. so it made it, it made it so much different. I mean, in Portugal, right. in, uh, I still in college, I took all my notes with a slate and stylus. So, mm-hmm. uh, and I actually had cited colleagues that would ask for my notes. You know, because I can't do it now. I can't type half as fast as what I used to do. I mean, uh, writing uh, with a slate. But when I was in Lisbon too, in college was the first time that I had access to uh, Braille materials. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I did get Braille books, German books from, uh, interestingly enough, from East Germany at that time. Mm -hmm. And then English books from the the Royal National Institute in in, Mm -hmm. uh, England. So mm-hmm. it made it much easier. Um, once, once I when I came to the United States, the goal was to actually go to graduate school. Right, my goal. And uh, when I arrived, I came as a tourist with a tourist passport, mm-hmm. and then <clears throat> and then began the process of of, of becoming a, a, a student, Italian, right? Yeah. Because yeah. my parents were here. Uh, but it took a lot longer than I, I anticipated. It took almost, I think, nine months. But so in, in, in the British university system, there were very few kind of true-false questions or very few one-word answer kind of, kind of tests in the, in the university yeah. system. It was much more essays. Was that the case in, in yes. Portugal as well? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No multiple choice. <clears throat> right. And, and I think that that actually made uh, made a difference in in the in the way that we learned to process information because we couldn't just learn facts. We had to we had to learn to, to analyze much more mm-hmm. seriously, I think, as as university students than um, than students who were in in kind of American colleges. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I always felt that way. I you know, although sometimes I've, I'm afraid of verbalizing it with, with uh, the fear of coming across as a snob for European education. Yeah. But I think it's true. And yeah. Maybe, I, and who knows? Uh, maybe it's different there now, but. Um, I think it may be a little different. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, when I, when I started in university in 64, in um, I, I was attending what was at that point a branch of the University of London, and um, uh, th- there was th- uh, there was no such thing as um, as one word tests mm-hmm. ever anywhere. Um, so it was interesting. Um, so you arrive in the United States. Your parents are li- still living in South Florida. They are. They were. Um... And you decided to go to graduate school where? Well, this is, uh, so that was the goal. And I started applying for, I, I started looking for colleges that had uh, Portuguese departments. So I could use my Portuguese to uh-huh. have an assistant t- a fellowship or a, f- a teaching mm-hmm. assistantship. And, and then once I, so I found some, I, I know I applied for George Washington in St. Louis. I applied for, um, um, I, I don't remember now the other ones, but the, the, the problem that I didn't, didn't anticipate is because my total number of years of school added up to 11, they kept telling me that, not 11, I'm sorry, to um, 13. Uh, 
14, 11 plus oh. the three. Yep, got They kept telling me I needed two, two more years of school. And I said, there's no way I'm going back to undergrad at two mm -hmm. years. So I decided not, not to, to pursue it. So I stayed home. And then, um, of course, my parents were going to work. My siblings were going to work and became very, um, very boring. And this counselor, the same counselor, which was a really wonderful guy, actually, he kept coming around and uh, trying to convince me to go to the rehab center in Daytona Beach, the uh, residential rehab center. And I kept saying no, but uh, so I came in August. Um, almost a year later, I called him up and I say, you know what? I will go to that. And thinking that, you know, at least it's one way of getting away from home. And I did. And that's really the first time that I became acquainted with, with rehabilitation. Uh, and the various, you know, daily living skills and communication skills. And so I had a lot to learn in terms of cooking and sewing a button and things like that. But then I was able to also do, do some volunteer work teaching the things I knew, Braille, yep, writing, yep. you know, communication skills. And, yep. Uh, yep. I, enjoy, I, I participated in that wood shop thing was really a, interesting thing but you know but the other thing was it was really the first time i was around other blind people your, your experience was the same as mine uh though really? though i i um I, I have an interesting question to ask you and i don't know how to ask you the question without without kind of tipping my hand in terms of the answer that i think you're going to give um when when you got to the rehab center, how did you find the, the the attitudes and performance of other students who were there? Um, it, it, you know the 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 center. It, it was really a mixture, right? We had we had yeah. kids, we had people there with very significant behavioral issues. Sure. Cognitive, cognitive yeah. disabilities, or autistic, I guess we would now call mm -hmm. it autistic. Yep, there's certainly some. Uh, we had some young people that were very immature, just coming out of the school for the blind, deaf and blind. Yep. Yep. And then I, I met there, I remember a guy that was a little older than I was in his early 30s. And he had just lost his vision. I don't remember mm -hmm. the reason for it, but he had lost his vision. We became very good friends. And every night we used to go out to a bar, the two of us. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes other people join us and all that. But I think that experience alone was one that, where I was able to share a lot of my um, concerns and aspirations. But I think I gave him a lot of... Um, Hopefully, I think I gave him a lot of um, confidence myself to him for him. Sure, sure. Uh, as, a, as someone that had lived through it for a while, and it, and 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 it's amazing. My experience, um, gosh, quite quite a few years later, was similar to yours in that in that I ended up doing a lot of kind of communication skills teaching mm -hmm. and um, and. Uh, um, GED teaching and and that kind of thing at the same time as I was really committed to learn things like like cooking and and um, and and getting around I I, mm -hmm. I used to um, I used to 
um, I used to spend lots of extra hours practicing mobility because I really wanted to get good at it. Um, but <clears throat> what, what I thought you were going to say is one of the things that happened to me is I got, and it's probably one of the things that I became, one of the reasons I became active in, in the Florida Council is I got really angry at the number of people at the rehab center um, and, and elsewhere as well, who, who essentially um, didn't much care about going to work, didn't try very hard to, uh, to be really effective at what they were doing. And, and I, I, you know, I had, I had come from a developing country mm-hmm. uh, or, or two where, where there really were very few services for folks who were blind and where the, where the folks who were blind um, essentially were, were teaching themselves and each other um, how, how to be effective and independent and, and really um, were, were behind the eight ball. And I, and, and, and I was really angry that so many folks in, in the United States were there tremendous opportunities to be whatever you wanted to become were just being wasted i found a lot more of that um and had had to often fight those feelings myself once i became involved in you know teaching and and and, uh, in the administration and seeing especially young people uh, how they and i i think i've said it before here in, in other forums the fact i think sometimes the reality is when you look back at my education and what i did and and the lack of support that I received, the reality is I had a lot of support from my family. If there were a lot of other kids that they would have succeeded if they had a little bit of support. And and I think that's the difference. You know, the only the, not the best, but certainly the ones with the resources and stuff are the ones that rise to the top. Yeah. Situations. Um, Yeah. In Portugal, right. It, it was it was often you'd see when you look at people in professions you either see lawyers or teachers a lot more teachers than you see here a lot more right and, and then at that time telephone operators you know and there was nothing in between yep. um, right and a lot of people not working at all or just bagging or sure but, um, but, but so. <laughs> What I so after the I ended up being in the rehab center about five months, uh, right? And the last few months really was mostly teaching and stuff. I also had a a, a person that I met there. You know, they had these uh, dorm. I don't know what they called them, but at nights, right? And there was this young woman that ended up being becoming a TVI afterwards. And I mean, I know I've I've seen her since then. Uh, that really was became a really good friend and very supportive and, uh, and, and try to at night, you know, encourage people to become in, involved in activities and going out. Mm-hmm. That made a big difference. Um, and then once I left, you know, the idea was, you know, I, I need to find a job. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think about maybe three months later, um, uh, the count, the same council called me up, and there was a there was a job opening in Miami for a braille teacher. 
And they were looking primarily for someone that could speak Spanish. And I, I convinced them that I spoke Spanish. I really <laughs> right. very well then. But I spoke a lot better than they did. So, so the the someone who became very well known here, at least in Florida, and in many circles, Vernon Metcalf, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, and then I ended up working there for two years teaching Braille, and and really again getting to know the system. That's when I. And my idea even, uh, that's when I, I, I found out, for example, there's a, a professional rehabilitation teacher and orientation and mobility. So I decided to, to get a master's in rehabilitation teaching. But even then with the idea that once I have a master's, then I can apply and go back to those schools and apply for a, a graduate school in English and, and without right. them asking me to do another two years. But, you know, once I, I went to the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, finished the degree, I did my internship in New York City and loved, loved the idea of being uh, totally independent and living on my own and, you know, um, that I decided to stay on and got a job, you know, where I did my internship. And uh, then I went back to get a, a master's in public administration so I could more easily move up. And, um, and so I moved up and run their organization and, uh, and, and others since then. So or did you find, did you find that at, at the Miami lighthouse where you were working with, uh, with Vernon Metcalf as, as the executive director, did, did you find that, that the approach that they were taking to rehabilitation was pretty different than it is now? Uh, uh, you know, he, he 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 was a very innovative person. Anyway, yes, yeah. Uh, he didn't believe in. I mean, he didn't have anybody with degrees. I mean, except mobility people. Uh -huh. um, but he, so he had me. He had someone else who was the daughter of one of the clients that became an ADL instructor. But I mean, I those people became. I thought they were really good instructors and they they um i learned a lot from them um now, one of the things that we did under vernon um in in his later years was we actually created a certificate program in orientation mobility at miami Dade yeah. college where i worked i heard that. um and um <clears throat> and so i knew, I knew one of your one of your graduates yeah uh, that's nice, but a lot of a lot of those those guys who graduated were really good O and M instructors, um, and 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 some of them went on to get um, degrees in orientation mobility and graduate degrees. But um, but you're right. Uh, he, he, not only was he the only person who was doing something like that, but he was also considered. Um, something of a rebel for doing it and mm -hmm. he was certainly considered by other organization um in in the private sector um to, to be uh, uh, among the people who would pay his people less than anybody else would <laughs> yeah yeah no you're right you're right um but you know the the i always one of the things i did in new york too uh, right after my once i became fully employed mm -hmm. worked as a rehab teacher about a year two years later with others i started a same a paraprofessional program to 
to uh, to train rehabilitation teacher assistants. And the same thing. I mean, the, those people that we train. What a good idea. They were better than, I think, many rehab teachers out there. Oh, because, I think that's right. Because they um, did so much tactical work. You know, we there was 10, 10 weeks, Monday through Friday, full days. And then we had a six-week in, full-time internship. But they focused so much on technique and how to teach and what to teach that I would put those. It reminded me a lot of um, the person that taught me mobility in Lisbon. I mean, he's the guy mm -hmm. that went, he had learned as a, in a seminar, a six-week seminar in Paris. That's what it is. Oh, my goodness. Mobility. Yep. But he was yep. good. You know, he was good. And he, um, so. A visually said, impaired guy or a sighted guy? No, it was a sighted guy. Nice, but you know we those are those arguments or those discussions are still going on today. Which, sure, which is you know a different story. Well, and and uh, you know I I had um, my first job with the Division of Blind Services um, was as a rehab teacher, um, and 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 I had no real qualifications to work as a rehab mm -hmm. teacher except for the fact that I was blind. Mm -hmm. I had two graduate degrees, one in international relations and one in education. So I certainly knew how to teach. Mm -hmm. But but one of the things that I started to do, um, well, uh, I guess the, the, the most different one is, is it, it, it suddenly occurred to me that the vast majority of my folks um, were uh, were over the age of 65. And um, when I would go around to uh, various spots to meet these people during the day where they were, where they were enrolled in programs for older folks, um, they were kind of sitting around doing nothing. And so I thought, how can I change that? And one of the ways would have been to provide more intensive training for for the blind folks who were there. But what I decided might actually make more sense, um, and it's, I think, similar to what, to what you decided, is I put together with um, uh, Miami Beach Community College a certificate program for activity directors in, in centers for older folks where I would actually train these folks in, in, in knowing something about blindness skills, knowing when they needed to refer to DBS, but also, you know, knowing about activities that blind people can do and, and get, getting them a chance to operate under blindfold and a range of other things. And folks loved it. It was a, it, it, it was an 18 hour course. And I, I, I did enough, um, enough recruiting that, that I was able to fill classes for two or three semesters in a row. So it's fun. That's great. No, and it's it's well well needed. I mean, I think we often get as professionals in this field, we get so um, territorial about mm -hmm. you know, and, and 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 that that we you know we we get territorial about what it is that we know, and um, and we fail to realize that how much these other other insulary people could be helpful, you know, if they had some skills. Um, but, um, so, so really, from from the time that you started working in in New York City, did you work for for which organization did you work for there? Well, the, the 
the, the name of the organization doesn't exist anymore, but it was called the Center for Independent Living. That it was not an independent living center. Nice. <laughs> no, I get you. <laughs> but it was a was a, a an organization that had been developed has been set aside. Well, there was a fund that existed since the eighteen hundreds, where a parish had set aside to take care of their servants that were going blind at that time, and then that money kept growing and growing, and finally the the board decided that they had a home where they had uh, six or seven people living permanently, but they had a lot of money left over and they decided to hire this person that became one of my mentors, uh, Doug Inks, to do, to start a, uh, rehab, uh, to start a, re- a program for older people, 55 mm-hmm. and older. And that's what he did. It was the first, I think the first uh, residential rehab program specifically for 55 plus population. How cool uh, is that? And that's why that's what I was hired. Then the from that, you know, they, he was able to to um, to move those old those po- folks that were left. By that time, it was only three or so a few years later to um, mm-hmm. different homes, and we became uh, providing itinerant service instead of community service instead of residential services in that 1984 many, many reasons, they merged with another organization that now is called Visions in New York. It's a large organization, Rehabations in New York. So I continue with them. And uh, 10 years later, in 1989, I I moved to work for um, Helen Keller International in the Caribbean. And that's where I met the other guests that you're talking about in the future, um, our friend Aubrey. And and I worked there as... um, as a uh, director of services in uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. So I got to travel around the Caribbean and Latin America <clears throat> and oversee or provide technical assistance to programs already existing with their local directors, but also, which I liked, um, just developing developing programs and, and identifying partners within both government and non-governmental organizations. Mm-hmm. That was a... Wonderful experience that after one year, Helen Keller International decided to to phase out their uh, rehab and special ed division. Mm-hmm. So all of us that worked there were unemployed. Um, so I, I for three months. So yeah, July, August, and September. For three months, I did some uh, private work, you know, using my rehab teaching degree. Uh, right, right. And and also with other friends, we started a, a new, an international organization. So I did a lot of work with that. But then I needed obviously to get a full-time job. So I found a job in uh, Philadelphia with uh, the local organization for the blind there and uh, became the director of rehab services. And by then I was, I had just gotten married. So my wife and I moved to Philadelphia and, uh, and then about <clears throat> three years later, the, the agency I used to, I worked for, for 10 years, called me um, to offer me a associate executive director position. Mm-hmm. So I went back. So my wife had just started graduate school at Temple in social work. So for nine months, I commuted from Philadelphia to New York. Oh my goodness. Which sounds like a lot, but you know, in some ways 
I lived in New York in some areas where it actually took longer than from Philadelphia. Right, right. Uh, because it's a you know Amtrak non nonstop, so it it, it was uh, it was good, and it was, it was interesting though because at that time the agency headquarters were was on Wall Street, so I was able to get if I regardless of the weather, if I was able to get to 30th Street Station in, in Philadelphia, I would mm -hmm. be able to get all the way to Wall Street without going outside. And the moment you get to Wall Street, no matter how much snow is coming out, you wouldn't know it because they are constantly, constantly cleaning it up. You know what I mean? So afraid of um, someone getting, getting hurt. So there were many times where people living in Queens, Brooklyn, and the Bronx couldn't make it to work, and there I was. I was able to. I was able to make it because I came from, from Philadelphia. Um, how did How did you find it was? And that was your, your your first experience. And I know you, you you it held executive positions in in larger organizations later on, but how did you find it uh, be, being an executive director of of an agency for the blind as a blind person? Uh, not a, well, I was never an executive director, right? So, mm -hmm. but I was always like the second person in command. Right. Um, it, it, I, um, it, it's an interesting question because obviously, you know, I worked in the field for over 40 years and uh, my goal was to become a, the the uh, executive director or president or right. CEO of the organization, and I never reached that. And there were several opportunities. There were several opportunities where the person that I reported to retired or left, or and somehow um, the board always felt um, that they wanted to go a different way. Um, right. I think initially, uh, when I you go back to the '90s, it probably has something to do with um, the blindness, I think, right? Because right. Of the boards. More recently, I I don't think it was so much the blindness it was more the fact that everyone now that every C, new CEO boards are so so um, inclined to hire someone with strictly development or fundraising experience that that was not my thing. You know, I I love government work, grants, and um, program development. Right. Personal stuff, but you know the actual development. I you know it's not my thing. So, um, but I think they made some mistakes, you know, along the way in their choices, um, if I may say so. But sure. Um, now the, um, the, the the difference though that I see as an executive, I, I remember as late as when I went to Maine in nineteen ninety nine. No, not so much main, but in, in Visions, 1993, four, five, I used to spend on an average of, I counted it one time, two days a week with a reader that would read me, read reports, read my correspondence, read my mail. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, if you, not two days in a row, but you know what I mean? Two, huh? two, no, three, I get it. That there. many hours. Yep. And, uh, and then by the time I went to Maine, in the early 2000s, I didn't have anybody, you know, and I, I was able in my position to to um, to demand or expect everything was electronically and, you know, provided. And if there was not electronically, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be handed out, you know, in a meeting, for example. Um, so I had 
I had that ability to control that. Um, and of course, technology provided that opportunity um, to do that. So let's talk about a couple of controversial things. Um, one of them is um, accreditation. Um, you were at several agencies that um, that that sought accreditation and can continued to seek accreditation um, long long after it stopped being fashionable to do that. Um, was your experience as probably the person who ended up running? most of most of the the, the accreditation yeah. activities of, of your agency given your position um, did you feel that that accreditation through and, and and let's put it out on the table through the national accreditation council was a worthwhile activity um, yeah I think so I mean my first experience was at the Center for Independent Living in New York back in mm -hmm. 1979 or 80 was the first time I went yep. through uh, as a provider. And uh, the, the reason for it was the director of the Doug Inkster that started their organization. He was also next first director. Yes. So, so obviously was committed to it. Um, yep. I, so, I mean, it's hard to, I, hard to remember now exactly how I felt. I probably felt very intimidated by that time, but um, sure. going through it. Since then, I had a long time period without going through revisions after the merger in 84. They never pursued accreditation. Interesting. And in fact, none of the, I think there was only one agency in the whole New York State that actually pursued accreditation, if I remember correctly. But none yeah, of the I I think one. that's correct. So then when I went to Maine, um, we were accredited. And, in, in, and in, even before Maine, I think, when I was at Visions, I started doing, um, I started participating in um, review teams. In so let's, let's, let's talk about that before we get too, too far along. What is, what is a review team and how did it work? So the, the, the 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 uh, accreditation process consists of a initial phase where the organization is giving a given a set of self study self study course uh, guides that focus on the services they provide whether it's mobility rehab teaching um, in the industries in the uh, industrial services they provide that but also then some management um, criteria mm -hmm. against which they have to measure themselves. So, and the staff has a, a number of months to to go through those those books, uh, fill out how they how they compare to the standards, and the sta and they're supposed to bring together groups of uh, board members, consumers involve the consumer organizations, and then once once you are satisfied with a uh, with your that your services, in fact, are meeting the standards. You provide that to uh, to the National Accreditation Council at that time, and then the council appoints a three. Typically, it's a three panel um, of um, member of your peers, um, meaning people people that work in the, in the field. Uh, most likely, people that have that are working for organizations that are accredited as well. Um, and then they 
they are given those self-studies that you completed and they review those and then go and actually do a visit to the organization that lasts anywhere between two and three days, interview people, look at files, basically to corroborate um, what you, how, what, how you uh, assessed your own services and agree or disagree with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at the end of that, and then they meet with the board members, they meet with executive staff, they meet, they call, we called, uh, as, as uh, re- re- panelists, we called um, members of the consumer organizations, grantee, grantors, uh, other partners that the organization identifies. And then at the end, we, we recommend or, or, or do not recommend um, accreditation either for the first time or continuing for another five years or provisional for one year to see because our findings then will include specific commendations what are they doing well uh, against the standards that had been set and recommend specific recommendations for each area to bring them up to a to standard if they are not meeting the standard mm-hmm. and then the and- and then that is reviewed by a, a group of, on the on the on the board that then recommends or uh, uh, provides the uh, approves or disapproves right the uh, continue continuation accreditation. So I I uh, I later on back when I was working in my in Atlanta back in uh, two and that's when I in fact I you and I got together again. Right. I joined the. I was asked to 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 join the board of of NEC, the National mm-hmm. Organization Council, uh, and at that time it was already a very different organization. Yes. And, um, but I'm fortunate with no money, <laughs> so. Right. Uh, I went to- and and also very much by then a kind of an organization under siege as well because there's. Yeah. <clears throat> there are certainly opinions in the consumer movement um, that that the National Accreditation Council was, um, as as folks were often fond of putting it, an old boys organization. Right. Um, and and uh, and and as Anisio suggested, I was on the board uh, of NAC. Um, oddly enough, representing ACB, though I'm not sure a lot of people knew that. Um, and <laughs> and and. The, the net result of all of that is is um, I, I think both Anisio and I can can say to folks who wonder um, that that certainly our efforts were to broaden and strengthen the involvement of consumers in in shaping the way that accreditation happened. Um, in other words, turn away from the approach that a lot of people perceived NAC to be taking um, early in its history. Um, and to, towards towards one that tr- truly did look pretty hard at at the nuts and bolts of services, um, but uh, yeah, I, I am I'm I'm glad it still exists under its new name, and I'm glad that accreditation is still happening. Um, do you feel like a, a accreditation or blindness specific accreditation is important? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, when we, you know, when I was on the board and we uh, agreed to, um, we had to disband the organization or to, to right. 
find another uh, partner that would take it over. Yep. I actually was for for another organization to take it over, uh, for CARF to take it over because yeah. they have that expertise, you know, right. organization and and I I think that's more important than the than the, the specific nature of our services. Right. And the board was the, the board was very divided over which 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 way that should go. I I, I was never a car fan, uh, and I'm, still I'm not. Um, and um, uh, we could go on in that subject, but, I, but we won't. <laughs> my um, my my second question is. In the in the beginning, when when both of us were involved in in rehabilitation to start with, um, the qualifications that professionals were required to have um, were relatively minimal. I mean, clearly, if 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 I had needed to have credentials in order to work as a rehabilitation teacher and then as a rehabilitation counselor, and frankly, I guess then as an executive director of an agency, which is what I did next. Um, I, I would not have been able to go to work in any of those positions if the credentials were absolutely required. But part of the accreditation requirement, but and, and also I think part of the way that services for blind folks have evolved um, is to expect um, that, that at least a proportion of the individuals who deliver services in organizations serving folks who are blind actually have blindness specific qualifications do you think those are important uh, <clears throat> I think blindness specific knowledge or experience and certainly experience right with it preferably but even other uh, I mean if you're talking about blindness specific by if by that you mean specific specialized degrees, I think we are we are too specialized. I really yeah. Um, yep. We, you know, we have recently started another uh, specialization a few years back. The the certified assistive technology instructional service specialist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and what what's happening though is we're not bringing you the number of people that are working in the field with these professional degrees is not increasing. What you're seeing more and more is people accumulating certifications. So it's not an unusual to now find someone who is a, a visual rehab therapist, also certified as a, as a, uh, catalyst, a technology, assistant, te assistive technology, and often even mobility. And, mm -hmm. So you're not increasing the, the pool. Um, right. I think we are at a point where we're talking so much about the number of especially older persons who need service. And to expect that all of a sudden we're going to get an influx of new professionals when it's been, what, 40, 60 plus years since mm -hmm. the degrees started and we have not seen that in fact we we have less programs now than we did back in the 60s and 70s so i think two things and and this is where the controversy starts one mm -hmm. i think that we need to use more 
people who are themselves blind and have the teaching skills, just like mm-hmm. you did, right? You, yep. you had a, the teaching ability, and sure. it's not rocket science. You know, I mean, this is not. It is not science. right. And then I think that the other piece, and this is even more controversial, I think, is the especially when you're talking about the elderly population that is primarily low vision. Mm-hmm. We need to be serving them in a more medical model that is reimbursed through Medicare and uh, insurance. And, and to do that, you're going to need a different type of professional that is licensed. And, and, and if we translate that into real terms, you are supporting the employment of more occupational therapists by blindness agencies? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've done it, you know, and now what, what I support, and I know finally that I hear there are some efforts underway to do this. The support is, is obviously just like any other professional, right? Not every OT is going to be one interested and two sure. capable or have the patience or the whatever it takes to do this kind of work. But once you find that person that has the personal skills um, and certainly is a, is a good OT, you can teach the blindness piece to, to work, to teach someone how to use a magnifier, to teach someone how to use right. light to, be, to better be able to pour a cup of coffee or to be able to regulate their flame on their stove without getting too close. You know what I mean? Those, those are the things that I used to teach. Sure. Um, so, but it's it, it, it's um it's controversial, and I understand it because it 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 means that it's threatening to a, a whole a whole profession, but it's a profession that is diminishing in, in numbers instead of increasing. Right. We have, if you look at certified vision rehab therapists in the whole country, mm-hmm. it's less than a thousand people. I think more closely to 800 or so. Right. So just, just, before, we, just before we leave this controversial subject, um, there, there are a lot of us who thought that, that the best way to deal with this was to actually try to persuade occupational therapists. And by the way, there are a lot more of them being trained than there are vision rehab teachers. Right. Um, um, and and but, but there's also an expectation to get paid a lot more money. Um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, um, that we uh, that that we should incorporate into training programs for occupational therapists some specialized courses in areas of that are blindness specific. Um, and there are a lot of us who felt like this is the way that we ought to go if we're going to deal with them, and, and we almost have to. Um, then we ought to try to assure that those folks get more, uh, more, more training than 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 they otherwise would have had in right. in terms of um, blindness specific skills. Do you think that's an appropriate way forward? No, ab- absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's imperative that we do that, and, and either through, either by incorporating more blindness skills training in in. in regular OT programs, which that would be unrealistic or probably more practical, provide in-service trainings, up, uh, um, postgraduate certificates, let's say, in blindness or, or low mm-hmm. vision, which already exists. I mean, there's one in, I think there's only one in the country in the 
at the University of Alabama. Provides uh, 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 that, but um, now, now there are a number of of almost completely online um, rehab teaching programs that that are out there, um, yeah. which which uh, which probably OTs that get hired by blindness agencies can be encouraged to get to to, mm-hmm. to take part in, and and maybe even can be funded by by private agencies right. or state agencies. You know, when you, you OTs, I mean, you, you, you go to the uh, Occupational Therapy Association, for example, and you look at their various special areas of specialization. I mean, they, they cover, you know, you have psychiatric OTs, or pediatric OTs, you have uh, hand, hand, uh, whatever, yeah. Hand, yeah. hand movement OTs. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so that, you know, it, it really shouldn't, it wouldn't be, uh, unlike others, to have a to have a blindness piece or a low vision piece or whatever. Yeah, know. yeah, uh, I I I agree. I you know I've had well the I I think I think there should have been much earlier than there actually was a lot more discussion with OTs um, about how to build together more job opportunities for OTs and more opportunities to hire larger staffs for private agencies who could use Medicaid, Medicare funding um, to, uh, to, to enable them to get folks who could provide instruction in areas that there just wasn't enough money to provide otherwise. Right, right. And I, I think, you know, that what I think the, we may need to, not today, but in, in may we'll take others, but we, there's got to be, there's, there needs to be a discussion of, okay, so if OTs get that training and are able to provide that service, what would a VRT do? Or what would a, a blind person who's interested in working in this field do? And I think there are lots of stuff that we should be able to do. That would be complementary, supplementary, that, that would enhance, that would be, that would be, critical for for uh, the rehabilitation of, uh, of blind people it's primarily younger people and adults you know what I mean not so much the elderly I, I see mm-hmm. the elderly really a, a separate type of population because they also have often bring other physical issues um, and challenges with them that an OT mm-hmm. is much more qualified to address uh, I, I, yep, I think I remember Take that's the right. teacher teaching a, a little person how to how to center a pot on, on the stove. That was one of the mm-hmm. things we used to do, right? In the burner, right? Sure. The burner. Yeah. And I found myself teaching someone who had only a use a, the use of one arm. And I said, "Oh my mm-hmm. God, what do I do now?" Because I was you, <laughs> you hold the pot and then you have a wood yep. on the other hand and you go around yep. and all that. And I had to come up with a way. But I tell you, an OT would have no difficulty. You know, right. they, with a, a better solution. Yeah. Yep. So, Miss Sheila, we're gonna we're we're going to pause for a second and ask you if you would be so kind as to tell folks how they can raise hands, and then after I ask Anisio one other question, we're going to take some input from other folks. Absolutely, Mister Paul. <laughs> <laughs> if you are on a PC, to raise your hand is all why. On a Mac, it's option Y. On the smartphone it, or smart device, it should be on your screen. And standard keypad is star nine, but I see no phone numbers, so we should be good with that. And 
you cannot unmute until I give you the okay to unmute. So, very good, excellent. So, Anisio, my 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 last my last question before we open it up is, and and you may have answered part of it. Um, what what do you think are some of the critical changes that we that we have to make if we're if we're going to be successful at uh, at doing better training let's 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 particularize it for older people who are blind now um i, I think for for older people who are blind i mean i i, I would uh, and and um and i've been informed where i i advocate very strongly for agencies for the blind to start to incorporate uh, uh, to start their own low vision clinic Yes. Uh, one because again, as I said, most most of the older folks that we serve have some residual, significant in many cases, vision, or remaining vision, and two, uh, the the my experience has been that every time I started, I started a low vision clinic in two organizations that I work for in Maine and uh, Atlanta, and in both cases, I noticed that the referrals from the eye care community it just grew exponentially incredibly i mean because right. one, they re, they can relate to that and two they especially when you have ot's on staff they it's a professional that they know they 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 are familiar with and they they will refer people and then the other piece that is probably just as important is for the old it, low vision low vision clinic becomes a a really critical entry point for services that is accessible for this population mm-hmm. Most right. people in the population will say, no, I'm not blind. I don't need the lighthouse. I don't need, but you talk about low vision clinic, whether they come in with the false expectations that you somehow you're going to cure them or, and perhaps you, you, you are in some ways, sometimes maybe disappointing to them, but you also have an opportunity to educate, to provide some low vision devices that enhance the vision that they have but also introduce them to a lot of other services they otherwise would never avail themselves of, even become familiar with. Very good. I lied because I, I want to ask you whether you think that we're doing enough in terms of teaching Braille in, in private agencies for the blind now. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, you know and going back to uh, our friend Vernon Metcalf, I'm, I tell you, he... he hire me to teach braille specifically to people over age 55 which was amazing yep. to me. that was my full-time job and people were learning you know people are learning so for those that don't think people can learn but but i think the expectation now is is that there's not a need or technology is replacing it and, and in many cases it is you know not just the technology but also the you know the the apps like seeing AI and, you know, things like that, even for labeling, you know, so I, I, I'm more understanding about older people not learning Braille than I, I I get a lot more uh, excited and and depressed when I think about younger people not learning Braille, you know, people thinking how technology is going to replace that. For those who aren't familiar, seeing AI is a, is a program. Um, that operates usually on 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 phones, um, 
that that enables you to talk to volunteers about things that they can look at with your camera, similar to to a sort of a, a, a free or virtually free AIRA as a as an app, um, but has actually been very effective for loads and loads of people. And one of the interesting things about it is that it operates um, all over the world, unlike a lot of programs that tend to be country specific. You're talking, you're talking about Be My Eyes, right? I, I am. I actually, I actually just used it a while ago. All of a sudden, you know, before our webinar, I was doing some work, and all of a sudden, my computer just totally unresponsive. I'm pressing the power button and nothing. Dropping. <laughs> my wife was busy, so I called Be My Eyes. And the volunteer comes in and says, oh, I see a black screen. So I said, okay, so let me turn it on again. I turned it on like five times before. And the moment mm-hmm. I turned it on, she said, oh, it's coming on. And oh, it says the battery's dead. Okay, so that's why the thing was not talking to me. I plugged it in. And I mean, there was a call that lasted literally 15 seconds. And it, it solved my problem at that moment. Um, nice. Very good. <clears throat> All right. Miss Sheila. Yes, sir. We do not have any hands raised, but uh, I would like to comment, and I'm sure Larry would as well. Sure. Um, while I was working in the elementary school, uh, we had a lot of PTs and OTs that would come in and work with our children, and they had no clue mm-hmm. about vision. They were just there to teach somebody how how to hold a pencil or how to hold a crayon. And we would tell them, you know, they're low vision, but they can't see what you're telling them to do, you know. So I hear what you're saying with the fact that they need to be a little more specialized. So David Tanner, hang on a second. A friend of Anisio's, in fact. Oh, my God. From Washington (laughs) State. All right, David, you may unmute. From Minnesota, I think. Minnesota now, yes, you're right. Hey, David. Hello. David, how are you? I'm just fine, and I was really excited when I heard that you were going to be on uh, the radio tonight. So I wanted to say hello. And... uh, Glad to hear you, all the things you've been doing. Uh, it was nice to work with you for, I think it was about a year at Philadelphia. Yeah, David and I worked together in Philadelphia. And, uh, yeah, so was, 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 he a good, was he a good supervisor, David? Uh, not bad. I think we got along pretty well. He was very good at... Uh, Give me me some suggestions that helped me with the uh, training, and then I well, I I was a supervisor of the assistive technology trainers, but uh, but I didn't actually do training. I was I supervised the trainers and ran a, a, a nationwide assistive technology grant program. Oh, need us up. So Had to have been was, one of the first ones. Yeah. Right. This is back in 1990 or so, right? 1990, yeah. 1990, 1991. Yeah. And then I went off to Pittsburgh for, for nine months and started a new assistive technology pr- training program for them. And then 
And then AT&T at Washington, D.C. grabbed me. And mm -hmm. for two years, I was the blindness specialist for all of the AT&T employees in the United States for their accommodation. And How cool uh, is that? Also, and really also like for several of the federal agencies. So, nice. Yeah, and now I'm now David, I'm in, uh, you're Minnesota. in Minnesota, now, right, David? Mm -hmm. You are in Minnesota now, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm now, and, and I was assistive technology specialist there for 25 years, and retired back in July. And less than a month after I retired, I signed up to be a uh, a, a contract trainer and. Uh, Consultant for the state of Minnesota. So, nice. Can't get away. Yeah. No. No. I, <laughs> I think you know a lot of us can't well, leave it alone, David. <laughs> nice yeah, well, you know, when your supervisor that you're getting ready to retire from 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 working with her, when the supervisor comes and says, "Look, we need you too much," you know, it's good that you're finally retiring at seventy-three. But, but but we really do need you. <laughs> Would you please go sign up to be a contractor uh, before you retire? <laughs> How cool is that? Yeah. David, thank you so much for your call. Any, any, any final thoughts on an issue that you'd like to share with everybody? Well, you know, uh, the thing that bothers me, I mean, I've worked in, in several rehab places and and. and AT&T for two years, and uh, but uh, mostly I've worked at state agencies for the blind as technology specialist, and uh, it, it always bothers me when I see how many of these so-called rehab people that have master's degrees in rehab who know so little about rehab and so little right. uh, and understand so little about blind people. It just blows my mind. You've got a master's degree in rehab counseling, and, and you've been here counseling blind people for how many years? And I talked to you, and obviously, you don't know a heck of a lot about what you're doing. Yep. Not about blind people, anyway. Uh, any, thoughts right. on, any thoughts on that, Anisio? No, it's true. And, and it goes back to what, also what... Uh, what Sheila said before about OTs and PTs, you know what I mean? Regardless of what the profession is, you have to look, when you're interviewing someone, you're looking not only in terms of, uh, to their, uh, to their um, qualifications, they give you a, at least a, a starting point, but then you have to really look at their ability to, to teach people, their ability to listen, their, you know what I mean? There's so, many more, so much more that goes on in teaching or working with blind people than just providing a technique or, or um, so, and, and that's my, that's my issue with, you know, yeah. I mean, most OTs right now could, could not, not only would not know what to do with a blind person, but they would be intimidated by a blind person in many cases. Like, I can't tell you how many times, how many times. Related, related to that, I have seen so many times when I've been, like at a hospital mm -hmm. and, and and oh we want the ot to 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 help you out they didn't know 
They were going to teach me how to get around in the hospital. Or then they, they come over to my house. They're going to teach me how to get around in my house. Yeah. And I said, look, I've lived in this house ever since 1998. And here we are at 2022. And you're going to show me how to get around my house? Right. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but the thing that really bothered me, and, and you, Paul, you probably, and I and ACO both, you probably heard of co uh, closing the gap technology. Yes. Uh, conference. Well, yeah. uh, about five years after I came to Minnesota, which was 1996, mm -hmm. about five years after I got here to the Twin Cities, the OTs who had a lot of power with closing the gap went to closing the gap and insisted that blind people, blind and hearing people could not come to closing the gap. They didn't want them there. The special ed teachers didn't want blind and, 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 and hearing impaired at the gap and neither did the OTs and My they gosh. fought until they got their way hmm. they got their way I couldn't that's believe it. it's scary yeah it's scary I, did, I didn't know that david thanks yeah. for sharing that david thank you so much for your call sir well i am really glad to get to talk to both of you and uh an issue uh, really good to, to hear from you, and I'm glad that good to hear that all the things you've been doing. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thank you, thank you. Good luck. <laughs> Excellent. Um, Miss Sheila, anybody else? No, sir. So we, that, that means we're not con we have not been controversial enough. Well, uh, yeah, Nisio, we I think you need. Yeah, I think you need to share yeah. about AABL and all the other things you're involved with yeah so thanks thanks for the lead uh lead uh, <laughs> yeah. so i you know in, in my during while the time i so i i retired from my full-time career two years ago and <clears throat> until then i used to go to uh, mostly state conventions of uh, both nfb and acb and the uh, local chapters but i never belonged to one or the other at least not openly anyway uh, with the idea that oh, you know, I want to be influential in both, and da, da, da. but um, so, but once I retired and moved to Florida, I joined ACB, and uh, and and certainly I became even more connected and uh, and familiar, really, with the whole structure of, of uh, ACB through the community calls and all the the work that Sheila did and others around educating people and it, it's been a it's been a wonderful experience and um, then I became involved with um, I, I have been doing some consulting work with the aging and vision loss national coalition that is a consortium of organizations including vision serve alliance AFB ACB and ACB primarily through its Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss. So through that work, I became familiar with Jeff Tom, which I, who I didn't know before. So I met uh, Jeff Tom, then uh, Doug Powell, and others. 
And um, next thing I knew, I, I was going to the AAVL meetings. And the next thing I, I, I heard, you know, it happened. They asked me to, if I was interested in joining the board and I did, and I joined the, their advocacy committee. And, um, and it's been a great experience to, uh, to, um, to be able to do that. So one of the questions that, that, that we could at least explore is, is there are some of us who believe that there has been a pretty substantial change in the balance of power in the blindness system um, over the past five or 10 years ago. First, do you, do you agree that that's the case? The balance of power between the consumer organizations? Or? No, no. Uh, among organizations of blind folks in general, not just... Um... Uh, I th Yeah, I think so. I think they, they have... Uh, I'm not... Uh, honestly, I'm not familiar with NFB now, but certainly with ACB, has become a lot more professional, a lot more, um, mm -hmm. uh, a lot more um, uh, able to 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 keep up with the various issues, and and again, and and being able to use technology to a way in a way that is a lot more effective. That I think mm -hmm. that to to get the message across. So the role of um, of of AF, AFB, I think, has changed over the last five years. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes. I mean, I think they, they, have, they, I think they have become a little bit less relevant. And I mean, but AFB has gone through these changes of, of every time you know they have a new strategic plan, they change their, their mm -hmm. priorities and and stop doing some things and start doing other things and focus on others. So. Um, I, I'm also very involved with actually with AFP under their uh, blind leaders development program. Right. So I was I was asked to be a, a mentor. So I I, uh, I have been doing that as well. Talk a little bit about what that program is because I think some of our folks would really be pretty excited by yeah. it. So the idea is to the the idea of mentorship really is is a, a concept that is really really popular in the country now in, everywhere. And, uh, and certainly in blindness as well. And the AFB, they received a grant, I believe. Um, I think it was, I don't know if it was through the Gunt Foundation, but anyway, they got, they got some money to develop a, uh, to match uh, fellows, mentees, they call them fellows, to match them with mentors that, all blind, obviously, that have uh, either working in, regardless of whether they're working in the blindness field or any other field. I happen to work in the blindness field, but we have people there that work in the private sector, people that are self-employed, um, and they are the, the mentors. And the mentees, again, ran, run the gamut, too. The people that are, may work in the, be working in the, in the rehab system, Others may work in the, in the private sector, but all with the aspiration to improve, to expand, to, to grow. So they do the matching. Uh, the, you, you go through, you have a, a series of webinars that happen um, mostly every other week with uh, focusing on different topics with uh, moderators, and then they use those topics those discussions 
in your individual conversations with with your fellow. Um, we also we um, we do a, a one of those surveys, a three hundred and sixty five uh, survey, three hundred and sixty five leadership survey, and again based on the results, then we focus on those those needs that or or areas where the fellows feel like they could grow. And then we, you know, again, we focus on, on those in, uh, in our individual conversations. And then at the end of, um, at the end of uh, April, beginning of May, AFB has every year a, a leadership institute in uh, DC. The last two years that's been virtual, but they're going back to a face-to-face in-person conference this year. And the four days prior to that conference, they bring in together all the mentors and fellows together for a three, three, three and a half day training program uh, with Lee Nasahi doing the, uh, the training all around leadership, leadership development. And, uh, and then we get to uh, attend the, the conference, the AFP conference, meet their board members and uh, schmooze with them. So I'm looking forward to that. It's first time that I'm gonna be away away from home in a for a significant amount of time so this 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 year is the second consortium they had the first one last year and they are now in the process right now actually of of, of um um very soon publicizing the uh, the rec- the the time to receive applications for the next one so if anyone is interested um they should contact the person, the contact person at AFP is Neva Fairchild. N Fairchild, F A I R C H I L D, AFP.org. Interesting. How do you judge the success of a program like that, do you suppose? Well, I you know that's something that they're struggling with and <laughs> trying to figure out. Um, I mean, some of these surveys and uh, and uh, instruments can measure your, you know, we did this uh, leadership, 365 leadership uh, competency. It's not really the title. I forget the title now, but some, something like that. We did a pre-post, a pre-test that where we evaluate ourselves. And then we also invite others, people that we work for, people that report to us or colleagues, all types of different people to also evaluate us on the same right. same scale. And then there's a post um, survey again at the end of the program. So that will give mm-hmm. you a sense of perhaps growth from each of us. So I don't know that it tells you the success of the program per se, um, but I would think the, the success is actually probably more measured on a more long, longitudinal basis, right? If those people are interested in moving up in their career, are they able to succeed? Right. And it's an interesting question because there does seem to be evidence that says that a much larger proportion of blind people who are employed tend to stay in the position they start with rather than seeking to move up within their organization. Um, and, and, and I think one of the objectives of this program was to actually change that, was to give right. folks both the, the confidence and the skill to enable them to move to the next level. Right, right. 
And, and, um, and we didn't talk much about employment here, Paul. But one of the one of the most frustrating things in my that I drive from my career is that we have not really moved the needle that much. From I started this work in 1976. Yep. So it's 44 years or 45 years or whatever, and uh, the 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 percentage of people that are working. And I, I don't know. If, I don't know if the seventy or eighty percent. I usually go by the by the the fact that thirty five percent of the blind population that wishes to a working age is working, while in the general population, instead of thirty five percent, is seventy five percent. So it, it, it's actually a reverse, of right, of numbers. So, and I don't think that's changed much. Oh, and Paul, if I could interject here, Mm -hmm. Anisio, I have to tell you, I was looking for employment back in 2000, I think it was, and I applied for um, a receptionist at an insurance company, and he said, well, our office, and I was totally qualified, you know, I, I had all the qualifications. He said, well, our office is upstairs. And I said, well, I can go upstairs. <laughs> and he literally, oh, thought, have an elevator. <laughs> literally thought, because I was visually impaired, I couldn't climb stairs. So mm-hmm. it's not only the fact that we as blind people and visually impaired people have obstacles, but the employers oh, I know. have yeah. obstacles. Right. Because they don't understand that we are very capable. Right, right. No, I, 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 I agree with you. I mean, I, it is it is to me it is the biggest barrier is really their attitudes, and, and we have not been able to uh, we have not been able to um, overcome it. Overcome that. Yeah, and and I'm and, and and I don't think I don't think and and um, with with all due respect to our employment committee, with all due respect to the to the process that AFB is going through in in terms of looking at identifying a whole range of jobs within the federal system and elsewhere, um, I, I still don't think we have the answer. And and uh, but but I I think it probably is the most crucial and the most important issue facing people who are blind in 2022 and and i'm not sure i know how to deal with it what i am sure of i think um is that over the years we've tried darn near everything i can think of and none of it has worked and part of the question that i have is the heretical one which is are there a bunch of blind people who just flat out don't want to work Hmm. Yeah, and, I, you know, yeah. I, I think in some ways, I think that there are. <laughs> I think we are. <laughs> we have become as a society a little bit more. Um, I I used to have such a hard time with my with uh, when I was living in Atlanta. When I moved to Atlanta in two thousand six, was really the first time that I became aware of and familiar with paratransit. Right. Until then, I never took. I still have not. But and, uh, the, but you know, in New York, certainly, I I, I took mass transit and and 
in Atlanta, um, we, we at CBI, we used to do a lot of uh, activities. In the evening, we had a movie night, we had a book club, we had a Toastmasters. I can't tell you how many times I stayed late at work waiting for the last person to leave because we couldn't leave them outside, you know, in the winter and all that because they're waiting for the paratransit for three hours sometimes or, you know, it, it, and these are people that really should be able to have taken the bus or taken the train, you know, or motor in, in, in Atlanta. And in the past they would, uh, but not anymore. There was a woman in Atlanta that one day you have to interview her uh, that I work with. She, and she, a blind woman, and she um, she used to tell me stories like how how she used to drive, you know, carry her kids one in one in a stroller and the one carrying the other one, and the cane on the other side, and go on the bus. You know, I mean, you could not see that nowadays. Um, I, again, you know, going back to to my experiences growing up, is there was a time when there was not no no supports, maybe only the the lucky ones or the ones with the resources were able to do it. And a lot of people didn't do it. Uh, and now the paratransit maybe provides those that otherwise would have stayed home. I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but I do I, think there's a level of laziness and complacency that I, I never felt myself in the past. One, uh, one of the things that used to, that, that used to absolutely amaze and annoy me was the number of blind people who I've met who say, I, I want to work for 10 years till I qualify for SSDI and then I can retire. Yeah. Um, or, or the number of people who never seek employment because they've got SSI. Right. Um, it's, um, it's pretty scary. Sheila, interrupt us if we get hands. <laughs> I'm wondering. If, oh, if- I promise you I would. I'm Very good. One of the things I see different now is in terms of that may ultimately change or help change address some address some of these negative attitudes is I I see more people with disabilities on TV, for example, in commercials. You know, I mean, half of the time I don't even know they have it. My wife is the one that tells me they they do, right? Because they're, they're not. Uh, audible you know what i mean yeah they're not saying hi i'm a blind guy in a commercial exactly i think during the super bowl for example there was a car commercial where there was a blind guy there in one of the more the toyota commercials um yeah i didn't know that sometimes in sometime yeah i forget what commercial it was not driving but you know it it was it was blindness was not a part of the commercial which is Mm -hmm. even more important you know what i mean yeah so maybe those Things are happening that didn't didn't happen in the past, and uh, maybe that will will have a, an impact. I think the other big opportunity we have now is this work from home, because obviously nobody knows if you're blind, how old you are, or when when you when you were applying for a job or or doing your work. Mm-hmm. So, but as long as the job the 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 job is accessible, and that that may be the uh, that may be the key, but if we if we are successful in making some of those jobs more accessible, or you know, um, that may that should that should provide some opportunities or more opportunities than before. Mr. Mm-hmm. Paul, we do have a hand, Derek. Yeah, hey, Derek. hi. Good evening, everybody. Firstly, uh, thank you for a wonderful uh, program. 
I'd like to just say that listening to you guys uh, really has made me feel I need to get back to work. And Good. even though I'm at retirement age, I've been uh, you know, dealing with blindness for five years, six years, seven years now. Actually, it's more like 10. <laughs> uh, where do the years go? And um, I kind of got lazy during that time. I think I felt sorry for myself without actually realizing I felt sorry for myself. But I also got used to the fact, like you're saying, I was on SSDI. Um, and, you know, it, you reach a point in life where you go, this just isn't cutting it. And listening mm -hmm. to you guys talk, uh, has made me realize I have a lot of skills and I need to put them back into use again. And uh, I'd like to just say thank you for inspiring me, all, all of you. Well, and thank you for being inspired. Oh, Thanks for, for saying yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. I, and, and, and keep in touch with us and let us know how it goes, Derek. Yes, um, I what, will. What part of the country do you live in, Derek? I'm in Sheila's neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's yeah, excellent. I, I mean, Winter Park, Orlando area. Yeah, we're 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 getting all these Floridians who are who are relatively new to me anyway, Sheila. It's amazing. I, we're lucky. I know you'll get a lot of support from the uh, Orlando chapter. And yeah, uh, if if you're not going, Derek, you should be. I to the to the event. Yes, I will be going. Yeah. But they they, yeah. they have a, a I, I don't are you guys still doing it virtually or are you doing it in person now, Michelle? Your your virtual. local chapter meeting still virtual. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. You should <clears throat> you should attend those, Mr. Derek. There 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 are some really good people in um in in the Orlando chapter who can uh, who can continue to inspire you. I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, yes. You know, I uh, I'm part of uh, GOCB. Um, the nice. group, uh, Great Orlando Council of the Blind, yep. and I've met some wonderful people, and I'm always inspired by people like Sheila, who led the leads the group, and just others. They just they they just seem to have so much boundless energy, despite being blind. It's it's truly amazing. Yeah, we're we're pretty amazed by Sheila as well. Yes, as we are. Is Sheila yeah. no more hands? No, sir. All right. Um, so, Mr. Anisio, you're working a lot on developing a, an initiative for older blind people. Um, those of us who started working on, on that issue a few years ago were doing so from the perspective that there was an expectation that the number of visually impaired people was going to double over the next decade or so because of the fact that people are living longer and because of the fact that therefore a larger proportion of them would, would, would have vision loss. But my question to you is uh, what, what do you think is the best way forward for us in terms of drawing more attention on the part of legislators to the desperate need for additional funds um, to support this process that at the moment um, is not getting nearly enough money from the system. Well, one of the, one of the 
projects that uh, the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition is involved in or is developing is what they call the big data project. It's not, I'm not involved with that, but you know, it's, it's something that John Cruz and other researchers are, are working on. And they, they uh, Lee, the Vision Serve Alliance was able to get funding for eight states, one of them being Florida, where they are able to utilize the, the data from the, a couple of national surveys and extrapolate from those surveys actual prevalence data and incidence data of uh, a visual impairment and blindness, but also, which to me is even more important than figure out what are some of the some of the variable variables that are associated with those people who, who also experience vision loss. For example, one of the it's not totally surprising to me, but it it still is a uh, striking statistic is that in all the states, the eight states that they have done the work, the, the, the vast majority of those who are blind and visually impaired are very, very poor, which again, is not surprising, right? Because obviously they're not working, but it, the numbers are just astronomical. So, so they're very poor, right? They have and- very poor health. Right, and there, uh, and there's a larger proportion there should be of minority group absolutely. members too. I think. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. So, so you have a not a double but a triple and quadruple whammy, and uh, and I think those those kinds of numbers. And the goal is to get a get a, one of these reports for each of the fifty states. And I said they have the eight states so far, and then I think those those numbers will be will be critical for advocates to to bring to the legislature and, and mm-hmm. each individual local community because they'll be able to extrapolate numbers per county in, in each state which is really data that we never had um, yep so so better statistics because i mean those of us who have looked at blindness statistics forever have essentially said that we don't have any that are very good right um despite anybody's efforts essentially you know, there are three kinds of blind statistics, um, blind statistics, damn blind statistics and damn lies. <laughs> the question is, which is the, which is the more prevalent? Um, and, and, and that's part of the problem, because unless you can show data that that demonstrates to folks that the problem that you're talking about is real and and serious enough to impact um, the future, um, you're you're going to get nowhere. Right. Um, right. So, you know, so we, that, go ahead. Go ahead. Yep. So that's one of one of the tools. The other one is that we're working on the 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 creation of a message bill that um, one of our members, Mark Reichert, from also the former vice president of ACB, mm-hmm. he putting together with others uh, to and one of the things that a message bill would do is to establish a, an office on aging and vision loss. Mm-hmm. And again, that would, that would provide the leadership and, and uh, steer some of the efforts uh, to, to more programming, increased funding. I mean, bringing that connecting, one of the problems right now is like, you, you, Sheila, the problem that Sheila mentioned with OTs a while ago 
is the same you get if you ask someone who works on in aging in a, re, in right. a senior center or in a uh, uh, providing um, arts program for seniors or whatever maybe that a local AAA provides. They know nothing and um, about blindness or think that believe that we can participate or 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 take advantage of those so, so part of that one of the things that that office would do is provide some connect connectivity yeah. between some of those departments and services and then lastly oh. the, the last thing yep. I'm doing is with others I'm working on developing a training program on advocacy for older people to advocate uh, not only advocate for themselves but especially getting together and advocate for systems change. And Paul, so, you have about three minutes. So. Thank you. So whose fault is it, Anisio, um, that, that mainstream programs for aging folks don't include and don't know anything about blindness? Whose fault is that? I think it's ours. Yeah, because um, uh, I remember when I, I when I joined the, the field in 1976 at Miami Lighthouse, I went to a conference in Lake Wales at that time, the Lions Camp here in Florida. Right. Yeah. For three days, the AFP put together to, to on aging and blindness. It's amazing. 1976 to yep. bring together because right then they already saw the, the, the need and nothing happened after that, apparently. But I think we our need to be separate and to be both in terms of funding for blindness services as well as the professionals we use perhaps the expertise i mean all those things have led to us being insulated i think from other services we're seeing the the damage that that does not, that is done in terms of funding because all the other disabilities are getting more funding than we do Mm-hmm. There was a time when blindness was scary and we used to get a lot more funding, but for some reason that changed and, uh, and we now are often left behind from others. Uh, so I think being part of coalitions, working with them, and I, I think that's one of, the, one, of the, one of the things that we, we, we can't expect them to know more about us if we're not more visible you know, um, in front of them. Anisio, thank you so much for being here. In case people would like to get in touch with you, are you minded to give out your email address? No, not at all. Uh, it's my first and last name, so Anisio Correa. A, N as in Nancy, I, S as in Sam, I, O, C as in Charlie, O, R, R, E, I, A, the number one at outlook.com. Excellent. Anisio, thank you so much. I think you've given all of us loads to think about and have inspired at least one person to go back to work. So that's pretty exciting. (laughs) Um, Next week, there will not be a Tuesday Shopping Show because we will be right in the midst of of our legislative seminar up in Washington, D.C., or our leadership meeting. Um, The week after that, we will be looking at uh, the Durward K. McDaniel First Timers Award and uh, the Chase Awards. And our intention is to also learn a good deal more about Durward McDaniel. So I hope loads of you will join us for that program in two weeks from now. 
In the meantime, remember, until we enable blind people to get training, we shouldn't expect them to be successful. Good night.